There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to Curious Canadian History. I'm your host, David Boris. The St. Lawrence River is one of the most important waterways in the Western Hemisphere. It has been home to a multitude of peoples and has provided both food and commerce for centuries. It is both a cornucopia and a highway. First nations have lived along its banks for more than a millennia, and when Europeans began arriving in the late 16th century, they entered into a diverse and complicated world, patterns that had been shifting and evolving for centuries prior. Two of the main groups thriving in this world were the Algonquin and the Innu, and they would see the possibilities that the newly arrived French could bring, but also were very aware of the destabilizing nature that came as a result of the European arrival. This is Season 8, Episode 4, A 17th Century River of Change, The Innu and Algonquin Along the St. Lawrence River. Today's book recommendation is by the author Jean-Francois Lodzier, and the title is Flesh Reborn, the St. Lawrence Valley Mission Settlements Through the 17th Century. This was published by McGill-Queen's University Press in 2018, and this book is a groundbreaking view on the lives of indigenous people along the St. Lawrence River. It's drawing on a range of ethno-historical sources, and so the book reconstructs the early history of 17th century mission settlements and of their Algonquin, Innu, Wendat, Iroquois, and Wabanaki founders. Far from straightforward byproducts of colonialist ambitions, these communities arose out of an entanglement of armed conflict, diplomacy, migration, subsistence patterns, religion, kinship, leadership, community building, and identity formation. So to understand the First Nations living along the St. Lawrence River, we need to get a sense of the river itself. From Lake Ontario, the river flows northeastward and joins with the Ottawa River, the St. Lawrence's main tributary, 
and combining with other waterways flows into the rapids near modern-day Montreal. It then continues its downstream progress towards the ocean, often broken up by a series of small islands. The Richelieu River then joins it. And then it widens out at Lake St-Pierre, then narrows again near modern Trois-Rivières. It widens once more, and then finally narrows again at modern-day Quebec. After that, it explodes outwards, connecting with its second-largest tributary, the Saguenay, before finally spilling all the way into the Gulf of St. Lawrence, and then, of course, the Atlantic Ocean. In the 17th century, the vegetation along the river's banks was far more dense than today, and consisted of more numerous wetlands, swamps, marshes, and even small lakes, all of this containing a wide variety of both freshwater and saltwater species. This also meant a rich variety of animals that lived along the river, feeding off the rich vegetation and abundance of marine life. Because the climate of the region is fairly predictable, if not harsh, and its shorelines produce incredibly fertile soil, sometime around the 11th century, indigenous inhabitants began cultivating maize along the river. So maize is like corn. Clearly, the river also acted as a natural superhighway from the Gulf of St. Lawrence all the way to the Great Lakes and into the interior of what would become Canada. By the early 17th century, the river was largely occupied by semi-nomadic Innu, whom the French mistakenly called the Montagnier, and Algonquin, who today refer to themselves, and please forgive my pronunciation, as the Omamawinini, or as part of the broader Anishinaabeg peoples. While the Innu remained semi-nomadic, the Algonquin experimented more with sedentary cultivation practices. Corn, squash, beans, and peas were all grown along the St. Lawrence River. Peas, in fact, were not native to the region, but acquired via trade with Europeans. The island known as Minitik Uten in Tagugaban, the island where there was a village, was historically a popular sedentary spot for Algonquin until taken over by St. Lawrence Haudenosaunee, whose village was identified by Jacques Cartier as Hakalaga or Hachalaga, and today, of course, is on what we call the island of Montreal. Even for those Algonquin groups which did cultivate maize, none of them seemed to give up their seasonal movement patterns for obvious hunting and gathering purposes. For many Algonquin groups, their yearly habits were flexible, using a hybrid of sedentary and semi-nomadic practices. Both the Innu and Algonquin shared similar linguistic origins as part of the Algonquin language family, but the Innu speak the Cree dialect, and the Algonquin speak the Ojibwe dialect. Both groups organized based on highly mobile family hunting bands coming together in large groups in the summer and dispersing in the winter. A number of these family hunting bands would often come together in what anthropologists refer to as regional bands, or as the early French referred to as nations. These bands, often associated with a specific territory, were united by kinship bonds and often had chosen leaders, though these were not centralized political units in any Western sense. 
Because the winters were so harsh, cultivation could not be relied upon regularly. So hunting and gathering became key to survival, and it was crucial that the various bands disperse into smaller numbers in the winter to minimize competition for resources. Sometimes family groups would spend eight to ten months of the year in relative isolation from their cousins. Because kinship networks were defined by both the father and mother's side of the family, family hunting bands were constantly being reshaped and reformed, creating vast networks of connection throughout the various communities. When summer arrived, family groups would assemble in large numbers, often associated with their regional band or nation, and they would assemble at traditional areas throughout the St. Lawrence River Valley. One of the most important meeting points for both groups, the Innu and Algonquin, was one of the most narrow points along the St. Lawrence River. It was a prime fishing and hunting location, and the particular bark on the local trees were perfect for making canoes. The Innu called it Wabastikwak, the Algonquins Wabatikwang, and the Mi'kmaq Gipig. The French who established a permanent settlement there in 1608, would call it Quebec, clearly derived from the Mi'kmaq term for the location. Curious Canadian history. We'll be back after the break. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The relationship between the Algonquin and the newly arriving French was one rooted in trade but also in protection. The Haudenosaunee, known to history as the Iroquois, had been a constant enemy of the Algonquin, and the arrival of the French offered the Algonquin an opportunity to turn the tide in their decades-long rivalry. When talking about the island of Montreal, for instance, many Algonquin leaders professed hope that the French would build a base on the island, claiming they would then resettle it if done so, as this would pose a serious defensive obstacle to attacking Haudenosaunee from the Five Nations Confederacy. For their part, the French, especially the leading figure in early French settlement Samuel de Champlain, saw in the island of Montreal a strategically important position based along the St. Lawrence River. The French had been slowly increasing their numbers in both Mi'kmaq, Algonquin, and Innu territory since the early 17th century, and they saw the Algonquin and Innu as key partners in the lucrative fur trade along the St. Lawrence. Though on the heels of this commercial incentive came, of course, those far more interested in, and I quote, the civilizing mission that accompanied most colonial projects around the globe. As one early French colonial wrote back in 1612 about the indigenous groups on the East Coast, the vagabond and divided Mi'kmaq and Maliseet need to be assembled by the culture of the soil 
and forced in this way to reside in one place. As mentioned before, the key French leader in New France for these early decades of the 17th century was Samuel de Champlain. While Champlain did not seem to be too preoccupied with this civilizing mission, in 1615 he did bring four recollects, that is Franciscan friars, with him to Quebec to care to the spiritual needs of the French colonists and to begin their work with First Nations. But it was not really until the 1630s when the colony began to really prioritize this spiritual mission. In fact, many leading figures in the French part of the fur trade saw the arrival of the church as a potential threat to their economic relationships with the Algonquin and Innu. While it would take several more decades before the French did, in fact, settle on the island of Montreal, during those decades, it was clear that Quebec was becoming a key site of engagement between Algonquin, Innu, Mi'kmaq, and French, and even some Iroquois-speaking groups. Some bands took advantage of the good soil in the area to grow crops, but generally speaking, trade was key here and many different indigenous groups camped in and around the French settlement to engage in such. Of course, the French were also keen to proselytize, though the preaching of the gospel was received with little more than a mild curiosity amongst most First Nations that arrived in the area. Of course, the interactions at Quebec also meant the formation of both informal and formal military alliances, the earliest record of an alliance was back in 1603, when Champlain extended the French crown's offer of military assistance to an Innu Algonquin Maliseet coalition. In 1609, 1610, and 1615, Champlain and other French soldiers had accompanied this coalition on attacks against Haudenosaunee war bands. By the early 1630s, the threat from the Haudenosaunee Five Nations Confederacy began to grow as the Five Nations sought to expand their territorial control over the extremely valuable trading networks that crisscrossed throughout their neighbors' territories, specifically trading in furs. The onset of the Beaver Wars, as the ensuing conflict would be called, led to numerous attempts by Algonquin leaders to secure extended French military help as Haudenosaunee warbands were being spotted as far north as the settlement at Quebec. Because of the semi-nomadic nature of Algonquin and Innu, the family bands, small in size, dispersed, and isolated from one another, were particularly vulnerable to determined attacks by Haudenosaunee war parties. The Five Nations had several other advantages as well. They were far more densely populated, more sedentary in regards to agricultural practices, and lived in palisaded village communities, which were effective at defense. So, with the numerical advantage and agricultural advantage, the Haudenosaunee could more easily mobilize large war parties for long-distance attacks and better defend if attacked themselves. The Five Nations also had the advantage in firepower having a long-standing firearms trade with first the Dutch, then the British. The St. Lawrence Algonquins would not benefit from the same firearms trade with the French until years later. In 
the response to the Five Nations threat was mixed. Some, Algonquin and Innu bands, sought to remove themselves as far away from conflict as possible. Other bands were far more militaristic in their approach and even raided into Five Nations territory. At the same time that discussions of mutual defense were occurring, most Algonquin leaders were also suspicious of French motives. Many of them understood that the French were not being altruistic in their efforts to forge alliances. They wanted something. In a famous 1633 back and forth between Champlain and an Algonquin chief known to the French as Capitano, though this was almost certainly not his name, Capitano flattered Champlain in his construction of fortifications and his tilling the fields around Quebec. But when Champlain sought to offer up the Jesuits to help Capitano and his people do the same, the Algonquin chief deftly avoided such a commitment. In fact, when Champlain spoke of the future, where French men and Algonquin women would marry and the two peoples would become one, Capitano laughed. The French believed this was a joyous laugh, though others have suggested this was laughter directed at Champlain for voicing such fanciful ambitions. In an exchange in 1637, and a new leader requested French help in constructing a palisaded village near Trois-Rivières for his people, but balked when the lead Jesuit asked that the Innu children be left at Quebec to be taught by the Jesuits while the village was being constructed. French expectations that both Algonquin and Innu become sedentary Christians led to fairly widespread resentment amongst different bands. Still, some palisaded villages were erected with French help in response to immediate Haudenosaunee threats. However, just as French and Jesuit leaders felt that these were the first steps towards sedentary Christianity, the immediate threat of attack passed and the bands dispersed once again. This cycle repeated itself many times throughout the 1630s. A detected Five Nations threat increase, Algonquin and Innu seek French assistance, French couple their assistance with pressure to Christianize and become sedentary, the Five Nations threat then decreases, Algonquin and Innu disperse, and the French are disappointed, and on and on and on it went. It's clear that in this period, both Algonquin and Innu were key players in the St. Lawrence River Valley, and long before it was called New France and claimed for the French crown, these groups had been existing and cooperating in their traditional semi-nomadic way centered around seasonal migration patterns and focused on gathering at key resource sites. The arrival of the French brought new opportunities for wealth and defense, but the potential of wealth from the fur trade also triggered widespread conflict with the Five Nations. Of course, the greater the interaction with the French also brought epidemics which modern accounts have guessed at 60% population loss along the St. Lawrence River from smallpox, typhus, and other European pathogens. With the arrival of new people and new technology, along with the increase in warfare and the ravages from disease, the lifestyle of the Algonquin and Innu were forever and drastically altered by the mid-17th century. 
I want to thank you all for listening today. Don't forget, you can find me on Twitter at Doc Boris. That's at D-O-C-B-O-R-Y-S. You can find us on Facebook. You can find us on Instagram. You can find us on Patreon. And you can find us on all podcast listening devices. And please do not hesitate to write and leave a comment. We love to hear from you. I'm David Boris. Stay curious, friends. Stay curious, friends.